we're looking at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, actually. God doesn't call them the Ten Commandments. They're, they're called the Ten Words in Scripture, but Ten Commandments is a good title. Most of you at least know that there is such a thing as the Ten Commandments. And studies say that only 14% of you can state them. So starting with Randall, see what you can do. Okay, good, great. We'll, we'll revisit that later. Well, last week, Andrew recapped how the Ten Commandments fit into the storyline of Exodus. I'm just going to mention a few things, um, not what he did, but um, the people of Israel had been oppressed for, for 400 years as slaves, or they increasingly were oppressed over the 400 years, and God called Charlton Heston to deliver them, <laughs> Moses. Through Moses, God sent judgments and plagues upon Egypt to persuade Pharaoh to let Israel go. After the tenth plague, Pharaoh said, Uncle, and get out of town to Israel. So they left. A few days later, Israel is camped out by the, the Red Sea, playing volleyball and eating kosher hot dogs. <laughs> Suddenly, someone cries out, Hey, I see a chariot. Did someone order pizza? Wait, I see 600 chariots. We're in trouble. Turns out that the Egyptian stock market had fallen to the floor because of the loss of slave labor. So uh, the people, uh, Pharaoh and his army decided to go get him back. But God parts the sea for Israel to get through, and so they do, and then he unparts it when the Egyptians try to go through and um, washes the Egyptians right out of their hair. So Pharaoh and his army pursue the people, and, and they, they get drowned. They end up at Mount Sinai three, three months later, which is where we are today in chapter 20, verse, actually starting in verse um, 18, or chapter 18, they, they arrived at Mount Sinai wilderness, and it's here that God reveals his purpose for Israel establishing their identity. So in chapter 19, verses 4 to 6, I think we have that up on the screen, this is a, like one of the most important passages in all of Exodus, I think, because it establishes God's purpose for Israel. He says, you yourselves, this is God, saying this through Moses to Israel, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore them on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So um, like the eagles in Lord of the Rings, if you've read that, if you've seen that, they swoop in and save the good guys. So God saves the good guys and brings them to himself. That was his purpose, to bring them to him, not just to move them geographically, but including moving them geographically. He brought them to himself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the, the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Since Israel is to be a holy nation to reflect God's holiness to the nations, God puts on an awesome display of lightning, thunder, and smoke on Mount Sinai, kind of like um, Prune Hill on the 4th of July only maybe not quite as powerful. He says, Israel, stay back. Don't touch the mountain because this is a holy place, and you need to get how terribly holy I am. So Israel had been um, in, in pagan Egypt for 400 years and, and amongst all kinds of pagan gods and, and immorality. So they, they don't have a very good idea of what holiness is. So God is emphasizing, I'm a holy God, and you're going to be reflect my holiness to the nation. So you need to get how holy I am. You're going to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. 
So the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, were for Israel like the Constitution is for the United States. It lays out the fundamental foundational truths, principles that they are to live by, to live out being a holy nation. And then all the other laws in the Pentateuch, pause, vocabulary word, Pentateuch, that means five books. So it refers to the five, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, all the rest of the laws are, are based upon the Ten Commandments. Our main focus is going to be on the Second Commandment, but we'll briefly look at the introduction and the First Commandment. So we've got that uh, verses, first couple of verses up there. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God is speaking directly to Israel now for the first time. Prior to this, it's been all through Moses. So they're hearing God speak live and in person. And again, why is God doing this? Is it, why is he giving them these, these laws? Is it so they can earn and merit God's favor? No, it's because he's redeemed them, because He has made them his people, that um, he is giving them these, these laws to live out his relationship to them, his covenant relationship with them. So how do they obey him? He's teaching them. So from the list, first on the list is verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, this doesn't mean that they put Yahweh first in a line, a line of gods, like you can have other gods, but you've got to have me first. It's me only. And they lived in a world where people accepted many gods, cultures, every, every, every local area had its own gods, but they, they didn't have any concept of one sovereign god over all gods. This was, like, radical for them. So how often have you heard it said, all religions basically work worship the same God. It's pretty standard thinking. Muslims, Jews, and Christians all worship the same God, so the, the conventional wisdom goes. But they don't worship the same God. Allah is not the same as Yahweh. And we believe Jesus is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that's different than what they believe. So we don't all worship the same God. Others don't claim that we, we all worship the same God, but they, they say it doesn't matter what God you worship as long as he's meaningful to you. So bottom line is as long as it gives you a sense of meaning, that's all that matters. So a false god or an idol is anything we trust in more than the true God, something other than, than God that we consider as, as ultimate, that we build our lives on, that we feel without it, life isn't worth living. Life is meaningless without it. It's what we make the center of our lives because we think it, it gives us significance and security, safety and fulfillment. An idol is what we depend upon more than God for life, to meet our deepest needs and hopes. It is what we spend most of our passions and energy on, our emotional and financial resources on. Without a second thought, we, we just do it. We don't debate it. It just we, we, do, we are devoted to it, totally. It has unquestioned priority in our lives, so that, that's what an idol or a, a, a false rival God is. One way to identify possible idols is, what do I regularly get depressed or angry about when I can't get it? What do I regularly get depressed or angry about when I can't get it? Now, just getting depressed and angry doesn't mean that's an idol. By itself, but if, if it happens all the time and it's intense, and no matter what, 
I happen, no matter, when you don't get that thing, you get angry or depressed, could be an idol. We may try to deny that the things we consider ultimate and most important in our lives are idols or God's substitutes, but we are hardwired to desire God above all else. God made us that way. We, we can't not be that way. We're hardwired to desire God above everything else. So if the true God doesn't fill that spot, inevitably an idol will. The first commandment then is about worshiping the right God, the true God. The second commandment is about worshiping the right God the right way, true worship of the true God. And we see this in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Just as many in our culture think it doesn't matter what God you worship, many people don't think it doesn't matter how you worship. Hey, just whatever makes you feel good, whatever is meaningful to you, just do it. How you do it doesn't matter at all. We are told that we can seek God as our higher power, however we understand him, however we conceive him to be. Now, those who use carved images, pagans, who have multiple gods who make carved images to those things, they don't necessarily think that that's the actual God, but they, they do think that the image gives them access to, 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 to the God that they're worshiping. Uh, by presenting gifts, usually food, saying certain words and worshiping that carved thing, that, that idol, that image, they think that, that gets God in there, uh, obligated to them. They get credit with that God. So I've shared this before. What I saw when I was in, in, in India several years ago, I could see the, the altar to the monkey god and people bringing flowers and, and fruit. The monkey god was hungry constantly, and they brought him lots of fruit. So I said, well, why do you do that? What, what do you get out of that? He said, well, that helps. Um, it gives me a good wife. I hope for good ch- children, good health, and wealth. So if you feed the monkey god, you hope he, he does those things for you. God didn't think it was enough to just tell them not to make carved images. He, he, he had to list what not to, to make images of. So he said, don't make a heaven above, on earth, or in the water. Otherwise, they might have thought they could find exceptions. You can tell when people try to get around laws or rules when every contingency has to be stated. So you could say, no Oreos before supper. And they, they get an ice cream bar. Okay, no Oreos, no ice cream bar before supper. And then they get a, a Hershey bar. Okay, no Oreos, Hershey bar, or chocolate before supper. Or ice cream bar. And no matter how many times I say that to my wife, she has not, <laughs> hasn't learned how to eat yet. She loves chocolate. Why is making images of God so tempting? Why are we so drawn to that? Why is that such a problem for us, for them and for us? Because God said, hey, don't make images. And so Israel, throughout the rest of their history, made images and worshipped other gods. And he said, God says to them later through Moses, watch yourselves very carefully since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb or Sinai 
out of the midst of the fire. So I, you saw nothing but special effects. I didn't give you anything to make an image of. Despite these clear commands, Israel just continually made false gods, idols. Why was Israel so addicted to making and worshiping images of false gods? Well, because by making God or gods to our liking, we think we make him more relatable. We think he's more accessible, more controllable. We can make him and shape him to, our, to fit our desires. We want a God who affirms what we want. We want to make God in our image. We can remove his rough edges. We want to believe we can do things to obligate God to us. The true God is sovereign, and that's the word it means he's free to do as he pleases. He has no limits and completely self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He's not a needy God. So it's wrong to think of God as, as needing us or things that we can do for him or our gifts. The Apostle Paul was confronting the idol-infested city of Athens, and we see this in Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 24. He's preaching to them, saying, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by, by man nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Since he himself gives life and breath to all things, to everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their boundaries. So he made all the nations, he determined their boundaries. He, he doesn't need our help doing anything. When we make God, we, we make a dumbed-down image or version of God when we deny his, he's sovereign. When we don't see God as sovereign and self-sufficient, we devalue or diminish how great his love is for us because we, we, we make him needy. Because he's sovereign, he chooses freely to love us and show us grace. The fact he doesn't need us makes his love all the more valuable. If we make him needy like he's a codependent God, hey, I, I need your help, I need you, I'm so lonely up here being God, that's not God, that's an image. But he, in his sovereignty, he freely chooses to love us instead of his grace upon us. So he's more awesome that way. So don't dumb down God. As creator of human life, don't think, think God is whatever human beings make him to be. So Paul continues in, in Acts chapter 17. In him we li live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So don't, don't think that we invent God, according to our imagination. So what are other ways we make images of God? What are the, some of the other ways we do that? Well, one, one way is when we uh, overemphasize one of his attributes. So... Our culture thinks God has one attribute. You know what that is. Love. God's nothing but love. He's just a big, puffy love, love muffin. <laughs> That's all he is. And, and it just means tolerance. It means accepting whatever we are without any conditions whatsoever. He just, he doesn't want us, he just loves us. Sorry. 
uh, we also make images of God and we think and worship him according to our imagination, according to our desires, according to our, um, rather than according to his word. Our intuition, our impressions, what we visualize, what we feel like God is saying to us must be submitted to his word. And when we worship God according to man-made traditions, Jesus said, you, you, your worship is worthless when you, when you worship me according to human traditions that are not found in God's word. Basically, when we don't get a vision of God from the Bible, God, God made, us, made us to be a people of the book. He gave us words to reveal himself. We are people of the book of the Bible. What is true worship of the true God? Well, Jesus got into a discussion about worship differences with a Samaritan woman at the well. And he, he, he didn't say to her, it doesn't matter how you worship God, just as long as it's, you're sincere, it makes you feel good. He said, you worship what you do not know. Oh, Jesus, you told her she's wrong. You can't do that. It's just whatever it means to her. No, he says, you don't get it because salvation comes through the Jews. Salvation comes through the descendants of Abraham, not, not other than that. But even the form of worship God gave to the Jews was going to be transformed by Jesus. So basically what he's saying, we see it in John 4.24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So this is what Jesus, Jesus is basically saying, I'm coming to change and transform how worship has been carried out. All of it was pointing to me all along, and it's all about me. That's where he's going. We see it in John 5, where the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Do you see that? Every, every person who wants to worship God must honor or worship the Son as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Colossians 1.15 Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Philippians 2.9-11 Therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even though Christ is the visible representation of God, the only way we can see him now by faith in what he's done and how he's revealed himself in his word and in his works. When I was in Chile several years ago, there were lots of statues of Jesus and Mary, and Mary was actually a lot more prevalent than Jesus. So we, we, we worship Jesus by faith in how he's revealed himself through his word, through the gospels, through the whole Bible, because Jesus is on every page of the scripture. Well, God continues in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus 20. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of, of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, 
but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So basically he's saying, don't worship man-made conceptions of God because God is a jealous God. God has redeemed us into a covenant relationship with him like, as in a marriage. So just as a husband would be jealous of a, of a wife who has other men before him saying, hey, I love you, honey, but I love these other men too, he's jealous. Or just as a wife would be jealous of a husband who had images, photos of other women saying, hey, I think of you when I, when I look at these pictures of other women. She would be jealous. That's how God is with us. He says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So you can't use anything that's not me and say that that's me and, and worship that. Israel continued worshiping other gods, making idols, and God called it adultery. He called it prostitution in the book of Hosea. So Oprah Winfrey tells us this story. In my late 20s, I was going to a church where you had to get there at 8 o'clock in the morning, or you couldn't get a seat, just like here, <laughs> sometimes. A very charismatic pastor where everybody is, in, is into, into the sermon. This great minister was preaching on how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything and that he had said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was like 27 and 28 and I'm thinking, God is all, God is omnipresent, and God is also jealous? Is he jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right in my spirit. And that is where the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. So Oprah didn't hear God's jealousy as the holy love of a holy God for his redeemed people. And she jettisoned Christianity for that. She heard it as an ugly, selfish, insecure possessiveness, like human jealousy can be. And so she considered it just a religious doctrine that she didn't want. But God's jealousy is an expression of his holy love for the people he has redeemed. And so he says, rightly representing him, he says, rightly representing him for rightly worshiping him is not just a, a, an exercise in getting doctrine intellectually right. It includes that, but it is a matter of whether you hate or love God. And this is very important. Moses has to repeat it 40 years later when they're ready to enter, enter the land. So we see it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, the same thing that we just read in Exodus. So you can see it. I'm not going to read it again. How can this be fair that God visits the iniquity, the sins of the fathers on the children? How can that be fair? Even to the third and fourth generation, just to his children, to his grandchildren, to his great-grandchildren. A hard reality in this fallen world is that children offer, often suffer the consequences of their parents' sins. So you are, you are not free to sin without consequences. People say when, when they've done something wrong, well, I didn't mean to hurt anybody. 
well, we get to choose whether it's a sin or not. We don't get to choose the consequences. About 800 years after Moses, God's judgment fell on the Judah, the southern kingdom, the Bible belt of Israel, for their idolatry and other sins. They were exiled in Babylon. Jerusalem was in ruins, and they write in, Jeremiah writes in, in Lamentations, our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. So, common. Some see a contradiction between what God says here in Exodus 25 and 6 and what he says in Deuteronomy 24 16. So we see that fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Well, this is talking about legal proceedings. So in carrying out justice in Israel, you're not going to put your, the death penalty to, to your son for, for your sin. So th- that's very clear. But what Moses is saying, what God is saying in Exodus 25 to 6, is that God visits the sins of the fathers on the, ch- on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, of those who hate me. But shows steadfast love, hesed is the word, to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So hating God doesn't necessarily mean having hostile feelings toward him. It means not worshiping him according to his revealed way. So say, so, well, I don't hate God. I don't, I don't have bad feelings toward God. But if you reject God's revelation of who he is, God calls that hating him. But God will show his steadfast love, his his hesed to thousands or to the thousandth generation of those who love him. That's a 500 to 1 ratio of steadfast love to visiting sins upon generations. That's a pretty big ratio. So in comparison to his visiting sins on haters, God far more freely and generously pours out his covenant love, his steadfast, loyal, gracious love, his his unfailing love, his faithful love, his loving kindness on those who, who love him. Which brings up the question, do you love God? Any God lovers here? In Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Jesus is challenged by the the teachers of his day. Hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law, teacher? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is Matthew 22. This is the great and first commandment. God should get the best of our love. God should get the best of our love. The eagles were wrong. Not sweet darling gets the best of my love. But God gets the best of my love. He is to be our ultimate desire. What most satisfies us, we sang about that. What most satisfies us, what we long for above all else, who we trust in and treasure above anyone or anything. You are what you love, you are what you worship. Because you worship what you love. 
you are shaped by what you desire. What you pursue, you love. And what you love, you pursue. You, you, many of you have heard this quote from Augustine, church father of the fourth century. You've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. You've made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until, we, until it rests in you. How do we not make images of God? Well, the reason we are not to do that is that man-made images of God, whether a person, a physical object, or what we desire in our hearts, turns our hearts away from him. They shape our hearts to hate God and not love him. They reveal a heart that rejects the true God, and they draw our hearts to reject the true God. They both reveal a heart that rejects God, and they, and they draw our hearts to, to reject God. So how do we not do that? And, and instead, worship him in truth by loving him. You're not going to be shocked by the answer. By reading and meditating on the scripture, by praying, by participating in the community life of, the, of God's people, when we gather for worship, word, fellowship, and service. You, thought, you, you say I had to be a different answer. I, I don't like that answer. That just sounds like normal life. Well, I don't know how normal it is for you, but, but this is what God has given us. These practices, these habits, the way we arrange our lives around God's word and God's community of people uh, is what shapes our hearts. They're countermeasures to the ever-present God images all around us that so easily insinuate themselves into our hearts. John Calvin said, our hearts are, are idol, idol factories. Our hearts are constantly just churning out idols. They have to constantly be cleared the deck. Our hearts inevitably stray toward re-imaging, reimagining, revising, rejecting the true worship of God, which is only expressed in knowing, trusting, loving, and serving Jesus Christ. We keep our hearts renewed in love for Christ by regularly feeding on the gospel of the sin-forgiving death, his life-giving resurrection, his constant intercession, his constant praying for us as he keeps us in faith. Because we we constantly fall short. The Wall Street Journal had an article in anticipation of the the 10-year anniversary of the iPhone. Did you know that? Like, I think tomorrow or next day is the birthday of the iPhone, 10 years old. The title of the article was, Dear iPhone, I love you, I hate you. Do you love your iPhone more than you love God? No way. What do your daily habits reveal you, you love most? What do your heart responses reveal you love most? What if you read scripture and prayed with the same frequency and devotion as you look at your smartphone? As often as you check Facebook, Snapchat, Twitter, or other apps on your phone. What if you're joining with your church family in worship and serving got the same time and attention that your favorite TV programs or sports teams receive? Until Jesus comes back, we can't see God. We know him and have communion with him through his Jesus-revealing and gospel-centered word and spirit. 
when Patty and I first knew each other and lived in different cities, we kept our love alive by writing letters. It's a thing you do when you get paper and pen and put postage and send it, and by making long-distance phone calls. No one had to preach to me and say, keep thinking of Patty. Have you done your Patty devotions today? <laughs> they didn't have to say that. You say, I just don't have time. Well, the, the issue is how desperately do you, do you want it? How desperately do you want Jesus? In northeast African country of Eritrea, many Christians are imprisoned. Many of these are being held in containers. They're just, they keep them closed in, in containers. Some have been given Bibles in secret. They have split the Bibles up and, and shared pieces of the Bible with the, the other prisoners who are Christians. Everyone has a small part of the Bible. When the container is closed, it is too dark to read. But as soon as the doors are opened to let in some air or hand out food, the prisoners do not immediately come out. First, they inconspicuously hold their portions of the Bible to the light in order to quickly be able to read a few verses to be strengthened by God's word. Do you love Jesus as he's revealed in his word? How desperately do you want him to see him in his word? When you love people, you want to eat with them. So Jesus is planning an amazing dinner for us. We just had a wedding in our family, and we had, a, we had some good eating. We had a rehearsal dinner. So right now, we're going to have a, the rehearsal dinner for the ultimate wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus, he's, he's longing to eat with you because he loves you, and he wants, he wants to see you face to face. But until that time, he gives us the bread and the cup, reminding us of his body and his blood. But there's no way that we can enter into a loving relationship with him, an eternal life, eternally living relationship with him apart from his body and blood, his death and resurrection. So he invites you to come and enjoy this feast. So we're going to do that. Have the men come forward who are going to distribute the trays. So if you are, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted in him, to, in his death and resurrection to be your savior, this meal is not for you because this meal is saying, I recognize that my only hope for eternal life, for forgiveness of sins and everlasting life is by Jesus body and blood, and putting my faith and trust in him, treasuring him above all else. And it's not that the strength of our faith saves us, it's by the strength of what Jesus has accomplished for us. He, what he has done for us, we, we celebrate when we take this meal together. So we'll pass the trays, you'll take the bread as it comes by, you'll take the cup as it comes by, and then you'll take it in your seat. We'll give you some quiet time to prepare your hearts and uh, continue to focus on Jesus and what he has accomplished for you.